Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Have you always wanted to publish a book but aren't sure where to start? At Troubadour Publishing, we help authors bring their book to life through Matador, our self-publishing imprint, offering a range of services including editing, cover design, typesetting, marketing, distribution, ebooks, and audiobooks. With our flexible services, authors can choose the services that best suit their project, working with a friendly team of publishing professionals who carry out all work in-house to the highest quality. Rated the number one UK self-publishing services provider by the independent publishing magazine, Matador can help with all aspects of the publishing process, whether you're looking to publish a printed book, an ebook, an audiobook, or all three. www.troubadour.co.uk Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shapes of Stories with me, Lawrence Prestige. And yeah, I suppose we have a really thought-provoking episode for you guys today. And it's kind of hard for me to do this introduction because... um, I mean, it's kind of a hard topic, I guess, for some people to talk about. And um, but basically, I'm joined by a lovely lady through the charity Dignity in Dying, and um, the lady in question is a lovely lady called Angela that talks about her story. And uh, Dignity in Dying is about giving the right to people to die on their terms. You know, whether people are going through a really awful illness, terminally ill, suffering, um, low quality of life, and um, yeah, and uh, it's one. Of, it's a really hard thing for me to talk about because I'm not sure how I feel about it. You know, I've seen programs before. Um, you know, where people have been in other countries. You know, not so much. This isn't what dignity and dying do. Let me put that right. But um, there's some people that that have the depression and things like that, and they they go through a process where they where they're sort of legally allowed to to die. And you know, I don't think that's right. But what dignity and dying do is, you know, they have, they're they're trying to raise the voice, raise the awareness of people that are suffering because they're terminally ill, in pain, and, um, you know, wanting them to have that, that right to die on their terms, and I I think that's a really important message that we need to bring to the table, because, you know, we, I'm all sure we've all known loved ones that have been ill, in pain, and, um, you know, and shouldn't we give them the right to be able to go on their terms, to die with dignity, as the charity says, and dignity in dying. Anyway, I talked to a lovely lady called Angela, talks about her husband's story, and um, I'm going to let her tell her story because she'd be far more better at it than I, than I will be. Um, so, yeah, just listening to Angela, um, the lovely lady that talks about her husband's battle, the process they had to go through to try and have that right to die um, in the way that he wanted to, and... Um, yeah, it's it's a conversation I feel we need to have more, and I think it is getting more sort of um, coverage about and something that we're able to talk about a bit more. And um, yeah, so without further ado, here is my chat through t- Dignity in Dying with Angela. 
Angela Claney. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to this uh, talk. Yes. Well, how, how, firstly, how was your 2020? Because it was obviously a bit of a weird year for everyone. <laughs> well, mine was um, particularly bad, I would say, because mm-hmm. my husband died on the 1st of October uh, 2019 and then I thought things would get better and I would feel better after he died I thought um, I would uh, you know get up uh, wipe myself down as it were and uh, carry on with my life because we'd had a very difficult couple of years well in fact more than that Uh, before he died and I thought I would be able to cope. In fact, uh, it didn't quite happen like that and I was quite shocked that I uh, managed to get anxiety and this was like a default position every day when I woke up. It was there like a weight on my sternum and uh, it, it kind of didn't go until, well, it, it never went, you know, from the time I got up in the morning to the time I went to bed. And I couldn't quite understand it because, you know, we'd had such a wonderful life together. Um, I, I was, uh, I had lots of friends around me, wonderful family. Tom's family was so lovely to me. And I couldn't see why I had this anxiety. And then, of course, to top it all, in March, here comes COVID. So, therefore, uh, I found it even more difficult, I suppose, uh, being so confined to base. And and so it's gone on. I mean, luckily, I live in the part of the world where there are some wonderful parks. The Thames is close by. I have Bushy Park, Richmond Park. And lots of uh, people I can go walking with. So that's been a saviour. And uh, a month ago, I managed to get hold of an allotment in the Bushy Park. Oh, nice. Park, so in the Royal Park. So not that I'm a gardener, I hasten to add, but I've roped Mm -hmm. in three wonderful women who are keen gardeners. And we formed a great community. And uh, it's very, very exciting. To, to do this well, so nice. um that's been good and and generally my anxiety is slowly getting better with the help of some medication so um but i never thought i think it's a, it, it's a sort of ptsd i think as a result of the way tom died i mean that didn't help mm-hmm. anyway we'll obviously come on to that so yes 2020 yeah. has not been an easy year or the last 12 months so to speak so yeah. um, but you know I'm not the only one and and many are in far worse positions than I am and I don't have to worry about you know a job or losing worry about losing a job so um you know I've got an awful lot to be thankful for mm-hmm. yeah well Peter, before we hear a bit more about your your and Tom's story, um, t- tell us a little bit about the organization, organization and dignity in Diane. Well, I um, I think I found out about dignity in dying about I think it was in two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, um, and 
it coincided with, of course, the time when my husband was looking into this issue. Up until then, I really hadn't thought about it. You know, my life was uh, very active. Uh, we were going all over the place in terms of traveling and having a good time. And then when things started to go pear-shaped, this the whole issue of uh, assisted dying and what to do um, came to the forefront of our minds. And I don't know quite how I found it, but I did. And I thought, wow, this is, uh, you know, Dignity in Dying campaigns to change the law in the UK to allow terminally ill, mentally competent uh, people to have choice at their end of their life and if they so want to take lethal medication, which will end their life. And um, this really obviously str struck a bell with me. I mean, in the same way, you know, all those years ago, uh, women in particular fought for the right to have an abortion. I felt it, similarly that, you know, this was a human right to have some choice at the end of life. And mm. why should people um, in the UK, I think the only choice we have, if we want some control, is to travel to Switzerland. And, you know, I thought that was so unfair because, first of all, it's a complicated procedure uh, then having to be fit enough to travel. And of course, it costs a lot of money. And whereas I may be able to afford it, not everyone can. And uh, so I just thought, wow, what a worthwhile cause this is. And so I joined. And for, for many years, I paid my subscription, you know, was, was a general supporter and then I think about three years ago, they were looking for people to take a more active role, if you like, to drum up support and to try and change people's perceptions or make them focus on this whole issue. Because, you know, not unsurprisingly, most people don't want to focus on this during their lives. We've all got busy lives and the last thing you want to think about is your end. Hmm. Um, but as I discovered, it was, you know, there's shocking statistics, shocking in the sense that time and time again, there have been independent opinion polls showing that over 80% of the general public, whether they be churchgoers, disabled, you know, the ordinary man or woman in the street, all support a change in the law mm -hmm. and I found this staggering that why I couldn't believe that nothing has happened not not only that the the current law which <laughs> um I found really um shocking if you like uh it is not um it's not illegal to commit suicide, but it is illegal for anybody to help somebody commit suicide. So it's a curious 
<laughs> conundrum, if you like, you know, and you think, how, God, how can that be? And um, uh, anyway, I thought, you know, a lot more about this area, given the state of my husband. And I just thought this is the only rational thing, you know, is to get the law changed. And um, it might be surprising for some of your listeners to know that not only is it illegal to help somebody die, if you help someone book a flight to Switzerland, for example, technically, under the current law, you are liable to 14 years in prison. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That is wow, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And if I can just tell you what happened or contrast two cases of what's happened relatively recently. I think it was in 2018. Um, A couple in their 80s decided to commit suicide together. He had dreadful bowel cancer, and the wife didn't want to you didn't want to continue living without him. They, I don't know how many years, 60 odd years they'd been together. And so they decided to take an overdose of painkillers that the husband had been collecting. They were then discovered by a member of the family and taken to hospital before they were actually dead. And the husband died later that day and the wife he died when, when the wife was holding his hand in bed, in two hospital beds. She was then, can you, I, I still can't quite believe this. His daughter recounts, and you can even see this on YouTube. She says, they took my four foot 10, 80 year old mother to a prison cell in her nighty and slippers. They held her there for 30 hours. She was charged with murder and then put on trial. It's ridiculous, yeah. And if you contrast this with what is happening in Oregon, which is what Dignity and Dying want a law in the UK similar to the law that's in the state of Oregon that's been there since 1997, with no, um, you know, no abuse, no, no slippery slope issues that you sometimes hear about, you know, no, no uh, cases of, um, you know, uh, greedy relatives trying to pop anybody off, you know, this sort of thing that you, and it was a case of a, a woman also on this YouTube broadcast she was the daughter of a couple in Oregon. I think he'd been a doctor and a lay minister, and both, both parents were terminally ill. And they got approval under the law in Oregon that they could take a pill when the time came. They, got, they went through all the um, procedures and safeguards. And she said, and I've got a quote here, At 10 a.m., mom and dad drank their medicine and then they lay down together on the bed as they had done nearly every night for 66 years. They held hands, closed their eyes and fell asleep. 
my mum died, uh, mom died peacefully in 50 minutes and my dad fought quietly 45 minutes later. Their deaths reflected so beautifully the integrity and grace of their lives. And, um, you know, I think that's contrast says it all really. No, no, absolutely, and and we'll, we'll talk a bit about your husband Tom and um, yeah. the, the, the his story. I, I suppose we'll start more or less at the beginning. How how did you did you and Tom meet? Well, um, we met quite early on. I won't go into the exact details because that's quite a story. Okay, and, uh, would be worthy of a book, to be honest. Oh wow! But um, <laughs> write I it. Will ju- I will just say. Um, I met Tom in 1987 when I was 35 and he was 56. So there was quite a big age gap of 21 Mm -hmm. years. Um, I'd always been a sort of um, career girl, I suppose you'd call call me. You know, I grew up after the feminist era of the 60s. And I didn't want, I mean, this sounds a bit crass now, I didn't want to be considered as somebody else's appendage. You know, I wanted to do my own thing, get out in the world, earn my own living. And so it wasn't until my sort of mid-30s that I thought, oh, I would like to settle down and have someone uh, at home. I didn't I wasn't bothered about children. And in fact, I don't think, frankly, I could have uh, had any then. But be that as it may, it wasn't a a major issue for me. So initially, I wasn't too worried about the fact that Tom was so much older than I was. I would have preferred, obviously, somebody a bit younger. However, as I got to know him, I realized what an amazing man he was. And to this day, I have never met anyone more interesting. Mm. First of all, um, I mean, he had an amazing intellect. He was kind and generous. Um, He well-read, great sense of humor, often black, and he was a great cook. Uh, which really helped, and in his latter <laughs> years became a fabulous uh, sourdough man. So his bread-making skills were truly extraordinary. Nice. So, um, and he was just a gentle man in many ways, I suppose. Sometimes I played the alpha male, and he was the, the gentler. I was probably more aggressive, ostensibly, than, than he was. Anyway... And his background was so very different to mine. Um, As you can can tell, uh, although I've lived all my life, working life in London, I came originally from Wales, from the Welsh Valleys, you know, father a miner who then had to leave mining and he became a publican. So that was my sort of um, background. And Tom, on the other hand, was brought up in Budapest and from, from the time, well, he was born in 1931. And until the outbreak of the war, he had an absolutely cosseted childhood up until his very early teens. And then everything went absolutely pear-shaped 
not only with the Second World War coming, Budapest obviously was um, invaded and also he was, he came from a Jewish family. So can you imagine from one day to the next what that must have been like? Mm. Also, his father was taken away as sort of some sort of um, slave labor, never seen again, extremely handsome man. And his mother was left to look after Tom and his uh, younger sister. And they eventually had to effectively go into hiding um, false, they somehow found false passports, taken to an orphanage. Uh, and um, he survived, but there were times, there was a siege of Budapest for many, many months when people were starving, absolutely starving. And so uh, when he finally came to England, you know, food was so important to him, <laughs> you know. So he often said that, uh, you know, you don't stop eating one meal until you see the start of another one arriving, you know. So he loved food. Anyway, so that was his background. So he, so he survived the war and finished his studies in Budapest uh, as a geologist. And then the communists came in and, um, well, it was not so much the communists, but when the Russians came to quash the Hungarian uprising in 1956, he thought he doesn't want another uh, sort of um, crushing regime and he had to leave the country so he escaped on the back of a lorry in the dead of night for part of the way towards the Austrian border then had to walk the last I don't know 20 miles at night through marshes to get uh, into Austria so quite a story and eventually he ended up in England and made a life for himself. I mean, I could go, I don't want to give you so <laughs> much detail, but you know, he was a fascinating man. And what amazed me was when I met him, you know, you would imagine there was a lot of, um, you know, issues. He was, he was never bitter or, you know, he kind of managed to put it all behind him. I mean, he had a very difficult initial time in England. He got married very soon, started um, a family, and eventually came down, he was in Hull initially, then came down to London, and um, managed to pick himself up by his bootstraps, so to speak, and became a lecturer in geology at a college in London. And uh, for many, many years before I met him, that's what he did. Okay, that's that's sort of amazing story. How he it is, know, how it he is came an here. amazing story. Yeah, absolutely sure, I'm, amazing. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you, you've got a book in you by the sounds of it. Yeah, about, well, uh, <laughs> he wrote a book. He wrote oh, okay. his life story, and it's absolutely fascinating. Oh, Mainly around he he. Funnily enough, every chapter in his life, from the age of you know two upwards, every chapter has the heading of a, of a particular meal he enjoyed at the time. I mean, he was so fixated on food and plenty of it. Anyway. <laughs> well, what, what age was it where, where Tom was starting to get um, 
Pauline's and ill? Um, he was 65 when mm -hmm. he was first diagnosed with prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, I had just given in my notice at work because our plan was to um, skip off all around the world. Tom loved, uh, he was obviously a geologist, he loved the natural world, he loved exploring, uh, and we had planned all sorts of trips to, to see, you know, volcanoes in various places, or these sorts of things. And um, I gave my notice in, and then I think it was in the June or July of 96, and told them I would be leaving at the end of the year. We had an arrangement that suited them. It suited me. I would leave in the December. And then, in I think it was the August, Tom was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Well, he was absolutely devastated. He'd never been ill in his life, really. He was always very, very fit. Um, and... Uh, so, and I'd obviously just given him my notice on the bit. I was only 44 then. Um, he had made me save since, since knowing him in 87. He changed my life in the sense that I was a terrible spender. Hmm. And, he made, and he wasn't, you know. He had refugee syndrome, could manage on a fiver a week, we always laughed. Whereas I was easy come, easy go. So he made me save up. To, to build up a sort of pension pot. And then, um, so that was the plan. At 44, I was giving up work because there's no point my working until the normal retirement age because Tom would have been too old to travel and to explore all the places he wanted to see. So anyway, um, I had just announced my retirement or stopping work and... Um, we were devastated when we got this news. So I suppose uh, this happens to everyone when they suddenly discover that they've got an illness they previously knew nothing about. And you throw yourself then into all the books you can find. And as Tom was a scientist, you know, he really spent so long investigating the whole area, the likely prognosis and all this sort of thing. And... Um, we, we got the best treatment available at the time, um, fortunately, at the Royal Marsden Hospital in Kensington and had a wonderful woman, Dr. Ros, Professor Ros Eels, who looked after him for, in the end, for over 20 years. And um, so initially, Tom had treatment for this and we had um, a very uh, busy and active time uh, without the effects, the symptoms of prostate cancer. So the therapy had did work for a while and we did all sorts of wonderful trips, you know, wonderful volcanoes in Hawaii, you know, all sorts. The, wow astronomy in the Sinai Desert, seeing meteor storms, icebergs in Greenland, you name it, you know, we managed to see these wonderful things. And, you know, for somebody like me, um, who'd, who'd really spent their time looking at art in various parts of the world, this was such an eye-opener. Uh, you know, he knew so much. Of course, he was a 
geology lecturer. So he added so much to, to one's life when we went on these holidays. It was absolutely fascinating. And um, anyway, so we did manage to do all this. And then the, the cancer did come back and uh, things got a bit more difficult. He went on to um, hormone, uh, hormone treatment. And this gave him even more sympathy with women. He was always, um, he always thought women had a, a bad deal in life generally. And now he was taking these hormone tablets to suppress uh, the growth of the tumors. And he would always have to carry fans around with him because he'd get constant hot flushes. So he had a huge amount of sympathy with uh, middle-aged women anyway. Mm. But uh, of course, then we knew that, you know, as things got worse, um, you know, there, was, there would be an end in sight, so to speak. And generally with prostate cancer, um, it moves into the bones at the end. And that is a very, very uh, painful end. And um, I mean, to be honest, at the time I thought, well, palliative care you know, well, painkillers surely can sort this out. But um, I discovered that that was not the case. And for many sorts of pain, um, you know, it just doesn't work. So Tom was very frightened about this, as was I, of course. And um, I can't remember exactly when it was, but we saw a program on the television about someone with a terminal illness going to Switzerland. Um, I suppose most people have heard of Dignitas. This was another organization called Life Circle, which was run by a woman. I can't remember her surname, Erica. And uh, she, she was of a certain age, but had a very long plait, I remember. And she was the type you could imagine in the 60s was part of the kind of hippie, you know, mm -hmm. era. She was a, a rather alternative, very, very nice. And Tom said, and it showed what happened in Switzerland. And I remember after the end of this program, Tom looked at me and he said, that's what he wants when the time comes. And then he started to investigate uh, what was involved. And I think it was about this time that I'd come across dignity in dying. So, you know, we really had uh, something to focus our minds on. Mm -hmm. well, and, uh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, what, what does that do to you, though, when, you know, the person that you love says that they want to die? that's what they want to happen to them like how oh, it's no no it's no no it's not that they want to die they don't want to die but they want the death to be as pain-free as possible it's not that they want to die at of course all. yeah 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 he didn't want to die we had had a fantastic life i mean although we were chalk and cheese um, you would never think of putting us together. You know, I, I worked in, in the city. I liked buying nice clothes. I, I never looked at my bank statement. He, you know, he, he didn't care about clothes. He could, you know, we were com completely different, but he had the most wonderful, wonderful mind and lovely, lovely personality. And we just got on. 
really, I loved his company. Anyway, that's by the by. So for me, it was absolutely logical. I mean, why would, why would I want my nearest and dearest to suffer? I mean, you wouldn't, would you? You no. just wouldn't. So we just wanted to have effectively a sort of insurance policy that if anything got too bad, we knew that we had an avenue to go down. Yeah. You no, know, in the, in the same way, I mean, I know it sounds trite, but, you know, your, your pet dog, you know, you don't mm. want to see them suffer. You know you can take them to the vet when, when they're clearly, you know, not right. So it, it wasn't a difficult uh, thing to discuss at all. And in fact, I was so, you know, to me, it seems normal. I mean, why shouldn't you have choice at the end of your life? If you're in terrible pain, discomfort, indignity, you know, the end, you know you're going to die. You've got a terminal illness. Why on earth shouldn't you be helped? Mm -hmm. no. Why go, you know, I, I really don't see it's an, it's an issue. People say it's an ethical issue. I, uh, frankly, I cannot get it. For me, it's an ethical issue to leave people suffering in hospital um, and not do anything or can only do limited things. To me, mm. that is not ethical in my rule book, as it were. I mean, of course, you know, not everybody might think the same, but equally, not everybody is pro-abortion, not everybody is pro-gay marriage. You know, there's always, and that's fair enough, you know, we're not saying this has to be uh, mandatory. It's just for those who want it, and it should go, and it's not instead of palliative care. We want palliative care improved, and I can talk about that too later uh, in Tom's case, but it should go hand in hand, and that's what happens in so many countries now. Mm -hmm. you know, do, you, do you find it still like for people to talk about? Is it something that people are able to discuss a bit more openly, or is it still quite a taboo subject, do you find, with people to oh, talk about? Oh, I don't find it taboo at all. Um, I've, I've um, since, since joining DID and, be, and in latter years becoming more active, you know, I've had stalls in fairs and things and, mm. oh, the volume of support has been truly staggering. Sta even I am staggered. And everybody I know, I mean, of course, you, you'd say, well, you know, they're your friends so, or people you know, so they would be for, but... I can count maybe two people that are still a bit unsure, but it's usually because they say they're worried about safeguards. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone I speak to, oh, my God, yes, we should have this. And um, I don't know if I've already said this, but time and time again, you know, there have been all these independent polls saying the same mm -hmm. thing. Yes, I know I said it. So... It, to me, it's an utter no-brainer. And um, obviously, I, I, I just see things from my point of view. But I know Christians who are in favour, you know, 
med well, many medical people now, as it happens, because there have been all these uh, polls done in the last two years. Things are changing very fast, I would say. But I don't think there is a taboo. What generally happens is that, you know, if you're a young person, you really probably haven't focused on this before. So your immediate reaction is, oh, we can't be killing people off. You know, and you understand that. But when they hear what circumstances you're talking about, and when they hear instances, um, as I mentioned before, the, the couple, who, the woman who was tried in, in, in English courts for effectively assisting the suicide of her husband, you know, the, uh, they're called the Eccleston family, they all think, well, what a horror. And um, indeed, Quite recently, well, last year sometime, one of the um, commissioners of police uh, got some terminal illness and he realised how ridiculous the law was and he got half of the police commissioners in England to write to the powers that be to say, you know, this law needs to be changed. We shouldn't have to be interviewing people, suggesting they help their loved one commit suicide. You know, there, yeah. was, an, there was another case, very uh, you know, heavily publicized last year or the year before, Graham and Ann Whaley. Uh, he had uh, terminal motor neurone disease and um, eventually made, uh, had to, you know, he was extremely ill but made it to Switzerland. He had a very loving family and his wife was um, questioned many times by the police, you know, and it was not easy at all. It wasn't just a nice tap on the door and have a cup of coffee. She had to go in to the police station and get in effectively interrogated, as I understand. I mean, what a nonsense. Surely the police have better things to do. Yeah. As you know, which is why this um, why this police commissioner got all you know wrote this letter. Mm. Why do you think there is, uh, I suppose, uh, reluctance with with changing the law? Do Do you think it's just someone doesn't want to kind of have their name to their name a sort of um, linked with the approval of it, being the person to say it's okay? Well, I, um, mean... I mean, they have been it. it before I started getting involved in this, there was an attempt to, um, I think it was a private member's bill, uh, to go through Parliament in 2015. And that didn't carry the majority, although it was passed in the House of Lords. Um, perhaps it's because they're older then, see the necessity. <laughs> but anyway, I think they were too... I think it was a new, a new Parliament. There wasn't enough legwork done. There were lots of new MPs, and it was probably an area they were frightened of taking a view on. So it never, it never got through. But things are really, really changing now. I mean, just the other day, um, uh, there, there's an MP. Well, first of all, there's someone called Noel Conway. You may not have heard of him, but he's been in the news a heck of a lot. He's got terminal motor neuron neurone disease and he has been campaigning 
as long as I've been involved in this, to get the law changed because he doesn't want to travel to Switzerland. But the only option he has is to take out his breathing apparatus, which means he then suffocates to death, which he doesn't want to do. So he wants the law changed. And he had been campaigning for years with vis-a-vis uh, -vis his MP, who was um, a, a strong Catholic. I think he's uh, Daniel Kuczynski. I think it's Daniel. Daniel Kuczynski. And um, he couldn't agree this until just a few months ago, he's finally switched sides, as it were, and can see that in spite of him being a Catholic, he will now support uh, a change in the law. And this is happening time and time again. My own MP, well, not the current one, but when I was doing a lot of uh, campaigning when I first started, was Vince Cable. Mm -hmm. And he it was on record that uh, he had changed his mind uh, from being opposed to being very much pro. And had he remained in Parliament, he would have brought a bill forward. So there is an enormous amount of change happening now amongst MPs. And there is something called the All-Party Parliamentary Group, which is... Um, uh, it's for choice at the end of life. And this now is spearheaded by Karen Smith and Andrew Mitchell. Uh, Karen Smith is Labour, Andrew Mitchell, obviously Conservative. And really, they're making great strides. And they're even hopeful that they can, uh, or a bill may be brought before Parliament before the end of this Parliament term. So, I mean, that would be absolutely wonderful if that happened. And if I can just put in a quick plug here, sure. if anybody is uncertain about what they think about assisted dying, if you look on YouTube and if you put Dignity in Dying, APPG, which is the all-parliamentary all-party parliamentary group for choice at the end of life. And if you watch the July um, episode, it goes through these two cases I mentioned in more detail. You know, the one in, um, the one in England, the, the, um, they're called the Ecclestones who were tried, the, the wife was tried, and contrasting with what goes on in Oregon. And... Um, you know, I defy anyone not to be moved by, by that, by, mm. by hearing what's going on. And also there's another, another meeting where um, the minister from the state of Victoria in Australia, she came on to that meeting and talked about how they managed to pass the law in the state of Victoria and how other states in Victoria and uh, in Australia and now uh, following suit. Anyway, that's, um, so, so yes, where were we? 
Well, what I, what I was going to say is, you know, I'm, I'm someone that's Christian myself and, you know, I'm 31 years old and there's, there's probably people of my faith that, that, that wouldn't agree, you know, with, with assisted diet. And, you know, that's their their opinion. But, you know, as a 31-year-old myself and, and the thought of trying to think, you know, what if I was in that position where... I think the worst thing for me would be the thought of growing old and having some sort of dementia, and that that would terrify me. And, and the thought like I was losing my mind or losing my identity. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I I think at that point that would be something that I, I wouldn't want to live like that. I mean, did it get no. to a point? Did did it get to a point with Tom where he was? You felt like he was losing his identity a bit when he was getting so poorly. Um, not losing his identity. But he knew what was ahead. Uh, I should explain that it wasn't prostate cancer that killed him, mm-hmm. funnily enough. It was um, what looked like a simple mole on his leg that was identified as squamous cell carcinoma, i.e. not melanoma, which is the really dangerous one. And we were reassured at the time that, oh, don't worry, we'll take this out. Squamous cell carcinoma doesn't really go anywhere. Well, unfortunately, it did go somewhere and it went all over Tom. And so when we, and he did start on some, uh, I mean, they were fantastic at the Marsden. He did start some immunotherapy, but he, he was convinced this wasn't working. Anyway, he knew then because he'd, he'd had operations to remove um, tumours from the groin. It was in the stomach, in the lungs. You know, things were not going to get any better, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And we'd already had this conversation, anyway, years ago about um, assisted dying. And he then, he knew he wanted to avoid, you know, having... Uh, a difficult death and he knew the only option was to go to Switzerland so then uh, he started this was uh, August time last year when we had the terminal diagnosis and it's actually the first time I burst into tears and I remember sobbing on the bus all the way home because Tom had had, since since the prostate cancer, there'd been a catalogue of things. And every time I thought, we'll get the best people on the job, and and we got things sorted. And this was the only time I felt defeated. Mm. And, you know, this is it now. So he was still himself, but he was so determined that he was going to have the end he wanted I mean, he'd always, you know, led a very independent full life. He wanted a good end, as it were. You know, he didn't want to be plugged in to tubes and God knows what else. He wanted to go when he still could. Now, the trouble is, of course, um, we had no choice but to go to Switzerland. And he made all the arrangements and indeed... um, You know, there was quite a bit, you know, there's a lot of paperwork to do. He did all that. Um, We knew, you know, we had the green light from, it's called Life Circle. It's not Dignitas, called Life Circle. Everything was, uh, you know, ready to press the button, as it were. 
However, at this point, because he, you know, he was on uh, mild morphine and, and things like this, we were getting treatment from the um, local hospice. People would come to see us and check that he was managing his pain all right, which he was more or less. Um, and so he still had... Um, a quality of life, not necessarily a good quality of life, but a quality of life. However, he, he, you know, you realize that you have to be able to get to Switzerland. So he was very keen to proceed with arrangements. But um, quite understandably, he has two wonderful daughters and they didn't see, they didn't think the time was right. They thought he still had a good enough quality of life and that it, this, you know, he could hang on still a bit. And, you know, I could also understand uh, their, their point of view, of course. Um, and at one point, we were going to have another scan to see if, or we'd arranged it with the Royal Mars Marsden to see if this initial dose of immunotherapy, this special treatment was in fact working. Tom had thought it wasn't working, but anyway, um, they were more positive, his daughters, and thought he still had some good quality of life. So fair enough. And we were going to do this and have another scan before finally fixing the date. We had October 9th penciled in, I know, anyway. And he was due to have a scan, uh, I think the third week of September, just to check to see if any of the tumors had indeed shrunk. Because if this new immunotherapy that he was given right at the end, just in case it would work, if it worked, it would shrink every tumor in his body. So we agreed we would check on that before doing anything else. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, what happened was, unfortunately, uh, one day, uh, he always had a pain in his stomach after eating, but one day became absolutely unbearable. I mean, in agony, and he had to be taken to hospital immediately in an ambulance, given lots of morphine. I mean, you know, it was the end, basically. And so he couldn't get out of hospital. Um, the, they did some scans and said there's some ma major blockage in his stomach. And um, he could no longer eat or drink. And they said, there's nothing we can do for him except palliative care. So basically, we missed the boat. You know, we, we couldn't, he couldn't have the end he wanted. Mm -hmm. And I do remember the discussion with the palliative care nurse the following day. And I thought, I'm going to tell her what we had planned. And I said, you know, I'm sorry it's come to this because we had been planning to go to Switzerland. I said, you're probably not in favor of this. And she looked at me straight in the eye and said, oh, yes, I am. 
And I have since met many, many palliative care nurses who are definitely in favor of changing the law. That's not to say that, uh, I mean, palliative care is fantastic and we should have more of it. But, you know, there should be an option alongside when things become uncontrollable. Mm. And um, I've since learned as an aside that more people than you ever imagine suffer greatly at the end of their lives in in spite of wonderful palliative care and that was a surprise to me because before I got into all this I thought oh well there's palliative care he'll be you know he won't have to suffer unfortunately you know it isn't I've uh, I've heard so many reports and there was some research done which came up with, I think it was 17 people suffer a very painful end every day. So, I mean, that, you know, it's not nice to think about, is it? So I'm not against palliative care at all. I mean, far from it. In fact, I would have liked Tom to have been able to get into a hospice right at the end, but, you know, they're they're few and far between, frankly. They're never enough. So Mm. he was in hospital I found it utterly traumatizing and devastating, utterly. I just couldn't believe what was happening and neither could he really. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you, how was his, I mean, his reaction, I suppose, to knowing that he wasn't going to go in to get the end that you and him had planned? Oh, he was devastated. One of the Mm. last things he ever said to me when I said, you know, what can I do for you, darling? And he looked up while he could, you know, he was still awake and could speak he said shoot me that's what I remember he was very very frustrated and upset Mm. yeah it's not the end we wanted it's not the end he wanted he had mo you know he was lucid for quite a few days but then as they had to increase the um morphine or similar to morphine he had, he eventually started to go into a coma. But even when he was in a coma, you know, there were times when I could see him writhe in pain Mm -hmm. and they had to stick a gastric tube up his nose, which eventually stayed there all the time. And they, you know, the first time they got virtually two litres of fluid out, even though he wasn't taking any fluids or, or eating anything. It's just what the body itself produces as we found out but you know he was in in pain I mean I'm not saying all the time uh, that wouldn't be true but there were and he kept pulling on this uh, tube in his nose this gastric tube but that had to stay in all the time in the end but you know it's just I found it uh, horrendous and I still have um, dreams about it to be honest well yeah I can only I can only imagine like it's um not not you know having that plan in sight as well that you both were working yeah Yeah, we were hard to achieve yeah I mean you know I must say though it took only two weeks for him to dehydrate and die nevertheless for me and for him I think it was just interminable Mm. To see somebody so precious 
to you, for you, you know, uh, disint, you know, just get more shriveled and shrinking and getting iller before, you know, it's like watching, well, it's slow motion death, isn't it? Slow mm-hmm. motion death. Yeah. You know, there was no point having, giving him food in his veins or because he couldn't cope as an individual. You know, you couldn't give him liquids because that just made the whole thing even longer. You know, death was inevitable. And I, I remember saying to the palliative care nurse, you know, um, can't you just increase the dose? She said, I'm not allowed. And... Uh, you know, and then being in a hospital ward. And, you know, the palliative care nurses were absolutely wonderful, but they were like two on duty for the whole hospital. If you saw them for 10 minutes, you know, that was great. A day, you know, it's not, not the environment you want for your nearest and dearest, shall we no, say. Of course. And, I'm, um, I mean, I was going to... Yeah. I was I was going to ask you as well. Like obviously, you yeah, it was devastating what happened. But I can only imagine is at some point when you know Tom finally goes, is it is is there some kind of relief for you? To, well, to of see course, him? there's yeah. a relief. Yeah. I thought he's out, he's out of it, and I thought also. I mean, I was in a bad state myself, and I thought I felt a huge uh, relief. But um, that didn't last long, unfortunately. Of course, yeah. And, uh, you know, I've never had a mental illness in my life, in my life. In fact, the, one of the, I've got six fabulous grandchildren, and one of them, the 19-year-old, they're all, because Tom was 88 when he died, mm-hmm. um, they're all adults, effectively. And one of them said to me, you've always been a beacon of optimism. I've always been very um, happy with my lot, enjoying my life. And this was the first time ever she'd seen me, you know, uh, depressed and anxious and um, Mm. crying, obviously crying a lot. But that's normal, isn't it? Even if he died the way we wanted to. But I found this uh, very, very traumatizing, even though, of course, it was quotes only two weeks it's two weeks I would like to obliterate from my life we had such wonderful memories together I cannot tell you walking on lava in the dead of night watching lava pour into the sea you know icebergs in Greenland I mean you know I mean things personally I would have never ever done and it opened my eyes completely and these are the things which stick in my memory and I'm so very grateful to him and having him at my side it's um, really enlarged my life my outlook on, on everything really so and I wanted to give him the best end that we could give anyone and we failed unfortunately That's how I feel. And, yeah, yeah, so it it was sad. And that's why I continue to campaign, um, because I think it's so important. Now, this if if you don't like the sound of this, that's fine. I mean, this is not, you know, if if somebody has strong beliefs, that's, you know, this is not mandatory here. 
you know, it's for those who don't want to suffer. And there's, there are so many cases I've heard, obviously, I, you tend to hear some awful stories when I'm campaigning. Um, and these things shouldn't happen. It is, I think, the duty of the rules, whatever they are, you know, human rights rules, you know, law in the UK, doctors, they should be there to minimize suffering. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about at the end of life. When you know there's a terminal illness and your quality of life is abysmal and, you know, you know, there's... Why, why drag it out? You wouldn't yeah. let a dog die on its own. Mm -hmm. no, and I... um, suicide, you know, the, the problem now is during COVID, people have been uh, committing suicide and often it, you know, it is not nice. I mean, throwing yourself on, over a motorway bridge, imagine the poor person that runs into. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah, and there was a... You know, there was a, um, I attended, well, when Tom was alive, we attended a debate in Parliament on the issue, which was very, very good. And one of the MPs got up and told the story of his father. And he was in tears because he said his father was so, he, he was terminally ill. His father was so in fear of involving anyone in the family, he went into the garage and and um, tied himself up to the car exhaust, you know, with a tube. And um, that's how he died. And he couldn't say goodbye to any of his family because it would have implicated them in, in any sort of assisting him to die. Mm, yeah. So he was crying, talking about it in Parliament. Yeah, it's such a... I mean, a, a, a topic, I suppose, pe people feel like it's um, so just difficult to to, to get behind it all, almost. Like, it's great that people are now, but like, I, I suppose before we almost kind of feel like, you know, we, we can't mess with death or anything like that. And there, there's like this thing like we feel like we have to stay stay quiet. And I mean, mm, mm. I, I mean, I, mean I, I suppose some people may wonder, and I thought this fairly recently until I sort of looked up on, on it, like how the procedure to end someone's life works. I mean, how for anyone that perhaps has no idea how, you know, how it will end, how someone ends their life and how they um, go off on their terms and peacefully. I don't yeah. know if you can kind of yeah. explain how it works. Well, uh, as I've never done it, I can't really <laughs> uh, tell you, but I know that for, you know, having seen, uh, programs on the television as it uh, certainly for Switzerland there's a lot of toing and froing with the uh, paperwork firstly mm -hmm. you have to have a report from your doctors here to say what state you're in I mean as, as it happened we already had that from the Royal Marsden and um, of course some people have difficulty getting this out of their own GP because mm, yeah Mm -hmm. uh, but but that was not the case. Uh, I certainly our GP knew what uh, we had in mind, and um, then uh, I mean Tom did all 
he he did all the sending off of the details and getting the green light but i know we would we we earmarked i know we were supposed to have it on october the 9th we would have gone say october the 7th then on october the 8th you would also see doctors in switzerland and they would go over what you you know your situation what your mindset was i think you may have also had a meeting with the police, I can't be sure of that. I know the police come afterwards. Anyway, so they sign off as well. And then uh, when the day comes, you are given a liquid to drink. And that is it. And it what, does it sort of um, send you to sleep first? And you, yeah, and you, yes, yeah. yeah. And then you die. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there have been uh, programs actually showing this on the television, I recall. And there was an amazingly moving program. It was, I think it was called Simon's Choice. If ever you get a chance to see it, it was fantastic. And it was, it was, a, hist- it was a family, I think from Clapham or around there, because um, his friend started up the group in Clapham for dignity in dying. Anyway, the, the whole family, nobody wanted him to go to, to Switzerland. He was a, quite a strapping guy in his 50s, probably. And he was determined to go, but they wouldn't agree it. And it was only after he tried to commit suicide at home and failed that they agreed to go with him. So it, it was uh, incredibly moving. And, you know... Uh, I've heard many who oppose assisted dying say, well, you know, you don't want, um, you know, what will happen is that um, relatives will force you to go. Well, you know, from what I see, and particularly in my own experience, and the case of this Simon, you know, his relatives definitely didn't want him to go because they thought he wasn't ill enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he did go in the end, and of course, in our case, uh, we didn't manage it. But talking to Tom's daughters um, yesterday or the day before uh, about all this, because I told them I was going to give this interview, and they said it not having the ability to end your life in the UK really blighted their last weeks with their father because he was so adamant and it got very, very strained. And they said, if only there could have been help at the end, we could have, you know, had an insurance policy, if you like, that, you know, it'll be there when we need it. And um, so it was very, very difficult for them. And they still, you know, think about it a lot no yeah I could I, I can absolutely imagine I mean when with um uh, dignity in, in dying with, with the organization is there a, um people that the the organization feel should be eligible eligible for it because I mean like, there's there's programs in I, I saw a tv program where there was this really young girl I mean, she must have been about 19 years old who had been you know she'd been dealing with um, severe depression. Depression, um, yes. Yeah, for, for a long time. And I can't mm. remember what country it was. And for six years, she had been planning to, to, to take her own life and she was meeting doctors and stuff. But right at the very last minute, she decided not on the day she was supposed to um, die, 
um, she 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 decided against that and changed her mind. So I just mm. wondered, in your I guess in your opinion, not necessarily the organisation's opinion, but who do you feel should be eligible to for, to be able to have? This? Well, what we're talking about now is change. I think your example was probably from Benelux, where they have mm. much wider. Uh, rules and regulations about this. What Dignity in Dying is in favour of is for the law to be changed for terminally ill, you know, with with six months or less to live, uh, mentally competent. Now, terminally ill does not include people with mental issues, Mm -hmm. you know, so you really are only talking about... Um, very, very sick, physically sick people. Yeah, no, I, no, I get that. Because I so, mean, that, that's a completely different argument, isn't it's it? A it's a different, it's, yeah. yes, it's a different... Now, there is another argument, of course, which is voiced by... I don't know if you've come across Melanie Reed. Melanie Reed is a um journalist on the financial times she writes in the supplement often mm-hmm. and she fell off a horse and has become i don't know what the term is is it quadriplegic i mean basically you know she is completely disabled and she would like the right when life becomes too difficult but that is not necessarily terminally ill you see so Mm -hmm. there are organizations who want a broader so that if you've got you know say if you had locked in syndrome I suppose where you could only move your eye you know you're not going to die in six months but maybe you don't think maybe you think it's a life worth living or maybe you don't so Mm -hmm. you know these are difficult issues but what we're talking about here is just for terminally ill, mentally competent adults. So nothing like these um, stories you hear from the Benelux. Yeah. No, you know, I... we are talking about specific instances where the whole aim is to stop suffering, really. Yeah. You know, it's just minimising suffering and i think that is why now the medical profession has moved considerably i mean amazingly in recent years in the past i think you know virtually all of them were against assisted dying that is no longer the case mm-hmm. so it is it is wonderful because mp's in the past relied on the medical profession i mean there's still a way to go you know, the um, there have been votes last year where the actual uh, people themselves, the doctors, are in favour, but the organisations at the top haven't actually bitten the bullet yet. But, you know, if you've got 50% or over of your members voting to, say, change the law, you know, I, you know what, what, what is the uh, top organisation will have to change its its view. So there'd be massive changes now from the Royal College of Physicians, Royal College of GPs, um, you know, whole the Royal College of Nurses is already neutral on the subject. I mean, you know, we just 
things are moving on, thank goodness. And now um, Andrew Mitchell, and oh, I think I mentioned this, and Karen Smith are really, really um, hitting the ground running on this issue. So we, we keep our fingers crossed, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I just do want to put in a quote which I dug out here from somebody called Raymond Tallis, who's a, uh, an emeritus professor of geriatric medicine. So he's seen a lot of, you know, geriatric patients. And he said, there is a small but significant number of dying people who experience unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved by even the best palliative care who want the choice of an assisted death. A much larger group might not take this choice, but would have peace of mind, and I think that's the important thing, if they knew the option was there, if they needed it. Mm. We have a moral and clinical duty to respect the wishes of our patients. And I think that's what you've got to, you know, when you're weighing these things up in the balance, what you've got to think about. I mean, I know that, um, you know, certainly heads of the churches have said, oh, well, the ethical issues. But for me, the ethical issue is whether you keep somebody suffering for too long. You know, there have been medical advances now. You can keep people going forever, almost. I mean, I know that's ridiculous, but, you know, much longer than you could have done many decades ago. Mm -hmm. But if that increases their suffering, and unhappiness what is the point no absolutely i was gonna say what what do you think um tom's voice would be about this this issue what would he be saying about everything oh i mean he (laughs) he well i know he was enraged as was i that we couldn't get to switzerland and i still i'm enraged by the inhumanity and cruelty of this current law I'm enraged that MPs have been so lily-livered not to tackle this issue when over 80% of the general population, whether they're Christian, Jewish, whatever, non-religious, are in favor of this law change. How can you say that if I help book a flight to Switzerland, I'm liable to 14 years in prison Mm -hmm. or being interrogated by police? I mean, and what about those poor people that can't get to Switzerland, particularly during COVID? In fact, there was um, uh, Andrew Mitchell had a question in Parliament just a couple of weeks back saying, um, addressed to Matt Hancock, saying, is it okay for people who can manage somehow to get to Switzerland during this COVID that it is treated to be essential travel? And he agreed it was essential travel. <laughs> Can you believe it? I mean, it's a nonsense, all this, playing with, uh, you know, ter- terminology. Um, well, yeah, well, I, I think what I was, I was going to ask you as well, so going back to Tom, what are your, fond, you know, what are the fondest memories you have of Tom? Obviously, oh. you know, not, 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 not yeah. thinking it's too much about the last sort of two weeks of no, his no. life, but, but, you know, what are the fondest memories you have of Tom? God, I mean, so many. He was so entertaining, charming, 
People loved him. He was a great raconteur. I think the fondest memory is the speech, the speeches he gave at our wedding and at his 80th birthday party. We gave a huge party. Oh, I mean, he was hilarious, <laughs> very dry, a, a great, and a great thinker, but he was hilarious. But he, he really made me laugh. Uh, and um, I can't, I'm just trying to think of an anecdote. I'm sure once we finish, I'll, I'll think of something. But there were some <laughs> hilarious ones. Um, I don't want to say anything too <laughs> revealing. As it's oh, you do it. Family it. might. Uh, <laughs> but we've had, we had so many laughs. So many laughs. No, he was great fun to be with. I mean, he was he was on his own. He wasn't perfect. I mean, who of us is? But we mm. had lots of laughs. Yes, I, I can't even think now of. But he was a true. He was a real character. He also loved. Um, I mean, this sounds terrible. Taking people to court. He became a specialist in the small claims court. <laughs> I don't mean in, I don't mean individuals, but people like. You know, Easy Jet, who messed us around on flights. You know, he was like a terrier. He <laughs> wouldn't give up. He he's got law. He never did law, but he read up. You know, reading tomes of you know books on law, uh, and uh, he was persistent. He was a real character, and I've never. I mean, he was brilliant. We have had so many great memories of him. All the family and the grandkids. Yeah, so it's wonderful. Yeah, sounds sounds amazing. Uh, I mean, yeah. wh- wh- where do you see the sort of the next um, the next stages and the next going into twenty twenty one? How do you how do you see you know the law progressing this year? What are you, what are your hopes? Well, I hope that there'll be initially a, a parliamentary or some sort of inquiry in Parliament to discuss this whole issue of assisted dying, because frankly, um, you know. Obviously, it's not on everybody's agenda, mm-hmm. but of course, you know, death is going to come to all of us. And um, there are so many spurious arguments you hear, frankly, from opposition groups. I just think, where have they got that from? Um, of course, there are some people who are fundamentally opposed, and that's fair enough, you know. They, they don't want it. I mean, that's their opinion. But to say, for example, that this will lead to a slippery slope and it'll mean disabled people being forced to die. I mean, it's an utter nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like, I mean, this sounds awful, but it's a bit like Trump saying, you know, there's voter fraud. When you look <laughs> at the actual facts... You know, this this system, for example, in Oregon, the system we would like to have in the UK has been going since 1997. It hasn't led to an increase in overall deaths. Neither has it led to any legal cases being taken against families who've, who've somehow persuaded or managed to engineer a death of their quotes, loved ones. You know, it just hasn't happened. And I know many disabled, I have many disabled friends also who say, well, just like you, Angela, I'd like to have some choice if, if things became so tough for me. I don't see that there's any true link between whether you're disabled or not disabled um, to have this discussion about 
no suffering or choice at the end of life. Mm. It should be a human right, surely. No, um, no. And I, I fail to see what all, I mean, this may sound bizarre to you, I fail to see what all the fuss is about. <laughs> and I'm sure in years to come, we look back and say, what took us so long? You know, so many, uh, just last month, was it? Um, New Zealand has now got it. So many uh, states in Australia, you mm -hmm. know, so many states in, in uh, America, Canada, you know, all, for goodness sake, uh, just if, if I think, if people look at the true facts of what happens, um, I can't see how you can't agree with it. You know, I haven't heard a proper argument yet against it. I know um, the heads of the church, you know, will, will feel one way, but, but it is sure that the vast majority of churchgoers think the opposite. I mean, that has been shown time and time again. Yeah. And I think once people focus on what we're asking, it's not for a blanket, you know, a blanket um, green card to, you know, finish off some, some grandparent that is getting on your nerves. That is not what it's about. This, you will have to have serious approvals, as it were, from mm -hmm. doctors, high court judge, you know, there's enough, there will be enough safeguards in place to stop this sort of thing happening. So I take, so far, I haven't heard one argument that would convince me that this is not a good thing to do and a just and a fair and a humane thing to do. And all our lives, all my life, I've had free choice. I've gone where I wanted done what I wanted as long as it doesn't you know harm others mm -hmm. and that's how I want my end to be and yeah. I have joined I've actually joined Dignitas in Switzerland um, because I'm frightened in case we don't get it through in the UK I and in case Switzerland's you know called Dignitas closes its uh, membership I thought I'm going to get in there now, even though I'm fighting fit as it happens. Um, and it's something I really believe in and will support. So, yeah, I, uh, I and yes. I, 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 no, that's okay. I, I think people listening as well really need to really understand what you're about. You know, it's not about people that are going through depression and want their life no. to render mental health. It's not about, you know, getting rid of what people may consider to have a, a elderly family member that's a burden. <laughs> you, like you're saying, there are these, this isn't something that's being done in haste. You guys are no. going, going through the appropriate people and the appropriate checks to make sure this is the appropriate way way forward you know this isn't you know this isn't about um like you say it, it it makes you think why what's taken us so long when someone is suffering and uh, why are we sort of prolonging prolonging that suffering for yes uh, you know i think you know are people misguided why is there mm. such fear mongering i mean of course nobody wants to think about death but um you know, when you do have to think, you know, when you do have somebody very ill in the family, my God, you change your, you know, suddenly it kind of hits you and you've got to focus on these things. And um, 
it just makes sense to me that alongside a caring, I mean, we really need to improve our palliative care system, that's for sure, because th there was no option for Tom to go into a hospice, they were all full. And, you know, this whole area of en end of life uh, does need looking at. So we get lovely palliative care. I mean, the palliative care people I've met, fantastic, wonderful, wonderfully caring people. And you should have the option alongside when things just become so tough, you know, and you know you're never, you, know, you can't always time it right to get to Switzerland. And that may always, you know, that may not always be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if, if anyone's sort of listening to, to what you're saying and, and going, whether it be a loved one that's going through um, a, a similar story to, to, to you and Tom, um, where would you recommend they look? Can they contact um, um, Dignity in Dying? Um... Well, you know, Dignity in Dying is not a place for advice mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, what to do you have to make up your own mind but it's a it, dignity in dying exists just to get the law changed in the uk for people uh, for people who are terminally ill and mentally competent you know they don't say to you this is how you uh end your life i mean that would be against the law for starters i'm sure course, yeah. so and you know so many people particularly now unfortunately are you know taking a shotgun and things it was a yeah. farmer the other day uh, so no they don't they don't do anything like that so you know i think your only choice if you want it is to um contact an organization like dignitas as far as i know you know, which is based in Switzerland and allows non-Swiss to use its services. But, you know, that's a, a big step. And when already people are usually very, very um, stressed and nervous when their loved one is ill, you know, it's a lot of effort on top. It's very mm -hmm. difficult. Yeah, no, so it sounds um, a really you know, difficult decision you'd have to make. Yeah. yeah. Because even if you wanted to commit suicide on your own, you know, without help, that is, of course, legal. But, you know, often there are failed attempts and you could end up being a vegetable. And, they, and then where do you go? Mm. No. You know, it's this. We've, I think we've got to address this issue because as, as the medical, as medical science progresses, you know, um, you can keep people alive more and more, but that's not necessarily quality of life. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I, th I think people should look at, and they can contact an organization called Compassion in Dying, um, which is separate, although a sister company to Dignity in Dying. Compassion in Dying helps you, for example, uh, make... Um, uh, I forget, but the, the uh, a living will. It's called, also called uh, an assisted... Oh, God, I forget the term now. Um, but they can find it out, yeah, on the website. A, yeah. An advanced, it's called an advanced decision. Mm -hmm. And you can lay out 
the terms on um, what you don't want doing to you, as it were. You can dictate that, uh, you know, I don't want to be resuscitated if such and such happens, or, you know, I don't want to be kept. Uh, it's to stop certain procedures happening, but it, it, it cannot, uh, you know, nobody can actually take any uh, action to end your life, but it can stop you getting treated uh, too much in a way, you know, it, when the time comes, when there's no hope, you just want to be left alone. You can make a, an a, assisted uh, a decision, which does have legal uh, legal ramifications for the doctors, which mm -hmm. uh, both I and Tom have done. And the other important thing to do is, to, is for your, for, the, for um, the loved one to, to, I mean, not the ill person, to um, have a power of attorney uh, for health and ideally for finance done. And this allows them to override what doctors may want to do because hmm. doctors uh, sometimes feel they have a right to keep somebody living at all costs. And it's very difficult. And one assumes that you're... Uh, the nearest and dearest will um, their opinion will count. It doesn't in law unless you have uh, a power of attorney, which you do online with a government authority, a formal power of attorney, which is lodged uh, with the office of the public attorney. I think it's called. Okay. Well, well Angela, so that that is worthwhile doing. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. Well, Angela, it's been amazing talking to you today. Uh, Tom sounds like a wonderful chap. Um, I, I hope, I hope uh, in his memory, we're able to sort of make progress with, um, you know, with, with things to, so we don't have too many more sad stories um, that people have to yes. see their loved ones suffering. So there we have it, a wonderful chat there of Angela uh, and her husband's story. Um, yeah, just something to think about, I think. Just something to to keep an open mind about and to think um, as a society, we come into a place where, where our loved ones are, we know what's going to happen. Obviously, you know, the NHS, they have the duty to, um, you know, keep us alive, you know. So it is a difficult thing to to talk about but you know when there is no sign of recovery when 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 death is you know going to happen at some stage it is you know in in some awful cases with terminally ill people it's it's not going to be a nice death it's it's, it's going to be a, a a difficult one you know you know not not, not any death so easy but but you know it's going to be a painful long grueling painful like I say battle and um when that quality of life is gone for some people I think it's something that needs to be considered and the person that's going through that to be able to decide wanting to go or to go surrounded by their loved ones in their way and I, I think that's a really important thing for, for us to think about and uh, I just want to leave that with you guys so you know I'm not going to kind of do the whole social media thing you tell you about where you can find us so you should hopefully know that by now um but i just want to leave you with the the four of people that are suffering and uh should we should shouldn't we let them go 
the way they want to.